welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Caleb and Baby Your Phrasing is Bad from 1967. That's because I've got Caleb Quay here today, responsible for that classic track. And this show will take you through many of the highlights that he had when working with Elton John. We've got other artists that Caleb was involved with, including Pete Townsend and Bruce Johnston. This really is a fantastic trip around the remarkable world of Caleb Quay, also covering his band Hookfoot. So let's hear my chat with Caleb. Hello. Hello, this is Caleb. We're in. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, sir. In the past week, I've been reading your autobiography, Louder and Rock. Yeah. A great insight into the uh, music industry, especially in the 60s and 70s. And I also understand you've got um, a film documentary of your life as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's based on the book. The book actually serves as the the script for, for the documentary. And so that's coming out this year, around May 1st. And how was that process chronicling your life? Because you've gone through so many, <laughs> so much, so much in your life. Well, it was definitely a, a roller coaster, you know. So, um, I mean, it was good. I'm glad I did it. You know, it, it wasn't something that I had expected to be doing in my life's journey. You know, books and movies are really not on my radar outside of just being a, yeah. an observer or a reader. So, but that's the way things were directed for me. And, and so I'm glad I was able to do it. And I'm really pleased with the, uh, you know, we republished it a few months ago and been getting some great reviews on uh, on Amazon, you know. So I'm very pleased with the way it's it uh, seems to be touching people's hearts. And your link and Fred with music goes back to your family. You're from a musical family, weren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my father was a popular jazz musician back in his day, and he worked with and knew, you know, some of the greatest jazz musicians and singers of that time period, you know, some of the greats. And so they used to come around to our house when I was a kid and have dinner and have jam sessions. And then, so I'm sitting there, this little kid just just loving the whole thing, thinking, oh, yeah, I want to do that. In the, the mid-60s period, children, I, I guess, seemed to leave school so young and after you left school. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I dropped out of school when I was uh, 14. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Had enough. I knew what I wanted to do in school just wasn't happening for me. And so uh, that was it. I just came home one day and with my report card and threw it at my mum. said, there you go. I'm done. So she says to me, and this is in the movie, she says to me, okay, well, tomorrow because that was a Friday at the end of the week. And she said, tomorrow, you're going to get on the train and you're going to go downtown. You're going to go get a job. I said, okay, sure. And so I did. <laughs> Amazing. And what a time. What a time to go into the heart of London and in the yeah. heart of central London, Denmark Street, Soho, yeah, yeah. which was just about to explode, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, yeah. No, yeah, it was all, you know, I mean, the Beatles had made it by that time. So, yeah, it was all starting to pop, you know, and so it was a very exciting time. The, the music stores, you know, I was always hanging around. There were two great music stores on, on um, Charing Cross Road by Denmark Street, Selma's and um, the Vox store, you know, so I was always looking in there, just drooling over the guitars and stuff. and yeah. It was a very exciting time. And you were delivering sheet music? 
Yeah, the first job I got was in this place called Paxton's, which was a wholesale um, sheet music distribution company. So back in those days, sheet music was still a big thing. Yeah. So you just still had dance bands, orchestras and stuff playing the popular tunes and stuff. So sheet music was a, was a big deal. And in fact, you know, when I got my job, I was there for about, I don't know, maybe three, four months. And then I was able to land a job at Dick James Music, yeah, which was the Beatles music publishing company. So that was like the big thing. If you could get a job in there, that was like the Rolls Royce of publishing companies. You know, they were the top of the heap. And they had a guy in there. They were doing, still doing sheet music of the Beatles songs. Ah. And uh, so they had this guy that they used to contract out. And he had this little office in, uh, in the basement of a, a place in Denmark Street. So I used to go around there, I'd, I'd cut acetates for him. Hey, Jeff, we need the top line done on this song, you know, yeah. Hard Day's Night or whatever it was, you know. And uh, it was a classic situation because he was in this dingy basement with a, a light bulb hanging over his head and he had the shades on and he's scribbling away, you know. And he was an older guy. He was he was from back in the, uh, you know, the, the big band days and stuff, you know. Right. So his ears were more attuned to saxophones and trumpets and stuff. He didn't understand yeah. guitar music at all. And he'd get very frustrated and he'd call me up. He said, hey, what are, what are they playing? What's this Beatles stuff? What's what's this chord? You know, so I'd tell him the chord, you know, <laughs> transcribing the music, you know, for the sheet music back in those days, yeah. I've spoke to a Tony King oh. relatively recently. Oh, okay. Who obviously you know. Yeah. And his story was quite similar when he started, albeit about seven years or so earlier. Yeah. And at such a young age, the steps that you were making, so, so for you... You must have been so young when you started to be involved in studio work. Yeah, I did my first sessions, started recording when I was 16. And uh, a friend of mine uh, is a songwriter called Billy Nichols. Ah. You know Billy? Yeah. Okay, so Billy. Yeah. We, we were young, teen, we're the same age, you know, so we were teenagers. Amazing. I love Billy Nichols. Yeah. So Billy was, he used to come into our studio, Dick James, to record his demos. Yeah. But he was signed to the company next door, which was Andrew Luke Oldham's company, Immediate yeah. Records. They were the first independent label in England, you know. So um, Billy got, you know, he was getting ready to do his first album. And so he asked me to come and play it on it, you know, which I did, you know. So he was the one that got me into the studio there. And it just so happened that, there was, because back then everything was union in the studios. Right. You had to go through the union. You had to be in the union. Well, I wasn't in the union yet, but Billy had snuck me in. He said, I want this guy playing, you know, I want my friend playing on, on, on this, this tune. So there was a guy there. His name is David Katz, and he was a, a contractor for, for studio guys, for sessions. In fact, there were two guys. There was David Katz and his brother, Charlie Katz. Charlie used to contract all the string players, right. and David would contract the rhythm sections. So when, I, when we finished the session, David came up to me, introduced himself, and he says, Caleb, he says, I, I really love what you're doing. Sound great, blah, blah, blah. He says, I've got all this work lined up for Jimmy Page, but he doesn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> wow. So at the time, 
uh, Jimmy Page was uh, a top session guy playing on all the Herman's Hermits records and all this yeah. pop stuff. But he was basically having a meltdown in the studio. He wanted to do his own thing. And this was in 66, and that's the time when Jimmy quit the studio scene and went and joined the Yardbirds. Yeah. And so, I did, I mean, it was just a providential moment, you know. So David says to me, I've got all this work lined up for Jimmy Page. Uh, would you like to do it? I said, oh, yes, indeed, you bet, you know. He said, well, the first thing you have to do, he says, I need you to join the union. I said, no problem, done, done and dusted. You know, so I ran off to the union, just signed up to the union, and then David started getting me all this work. And uh, so that's when my, that's how basically my session career started. Because you were on quite a, a lot of very famous Trog singles, weren't you? Oh, yeah, I played on most of their stuff, yeah, the albums and, yeah, Wild Thing, yeah, their follow-up. I want to spend my life with a girl like you, blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, you know. Yeah. So I was all over that stuff, you know, love is all around, you know. Yeah, all over that stuff. So Larry Page, um, he was their producer, and um, he bought, because Larry was working, his company was a subsidiary of Dick James Music. So he was he had an office in the building, so uh, he was working from there. So he called me in and... and um, asked if I would play because the funny thing is the trogs were so bad. <laughs> they were just these country boys, you know, that only knew three chords and they just weren't very musical, you know, and especially in the studio when everything gets put under a microscope. So Larry called me in to help them sound more recordable. So that's that's how that happened. You mentioned Billy Nichols before because that, that album, Would You Believe, is one of my favourites and he's... Oh, there you go. That's the one, Yeah. yeah. It's worth a, almost a house over here now, but in a similar way. So he's got one of the most expensive priced LPs, but you've got yeah. one of the most expensive priced singles, Baby Off Phrasing is Bad, which is a, a real cult classic now. So how did you get signed with Phillips and, and get to write, record and release that single? Yeah, it was all through Dick James. Primarily, I was signed actually to Dick James, and then Dick James did a distribution deal because at the time, his label wasn't fully set up. So he did a distribution deal through Philips. That's what it was. So I was signed to Dick. I was working there, but he also signed me as, um, as an artist and as a songwriter. And also, um, I got to run the studio that he had just built as well. So that's where I learned my craft as a musician, songwriter, producer, all, all the stuff. You know, I always had this thing... I honestly don't know where it came from, but um, once I got there and I and I started to see, you know, how sessions were run and how music was made, I got this idea in my head. I needed to learn every aspect of the process of making music, not just the playing, but the songwriting, the arranging, uh, and then the production side of it, you know, the engineering and ideas, who plays what. You know, I've always had that kind of a mind mindset as to listening to other people figuring out okay what part is going to sound best here you know uh, it's kind of like musical detective work and so dick james was just a wonderful which i'm forever grateful for a wonderful opportunity for for me to learn that stuff and um, same with elton as well yeah you know when i got him signed there you know that's where he really learned his stuff so um yeah, it was it was it was a beautiful time, you know. Um, and of course, this was 
you know, I often tell people from 1960, five years, from 1965 yeah. to 1970, I don't think we're ever going to see another explosion like that yeah. in the, the world of creativity. Because yeah. it, it was like all exploding at once, you know. It wasn't just um, the music, the, the playing, the singing, you know, the Beatles and everything, even though they were like leading the, leading the charge. But also in the, the recording arts and sciences, you know. Yeah. So like in five years, it went from, you know, when I first started, it was four track. That was state of the art. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was so funny because so we were doing demos that were two track and three track. And then a, an artist, let's say, would get signed to EMI. And they'd go, man, we've hit the jackpot. We got signed to EMI. We're going to go four track. You know? <laughs> and I was like, you'd made it. Yeah. But within five years, man, it went from four track, 24, 48 track. It was crazy. Yeah. And so I remember sitting in on a lot of those sessions where, let's say, Keith Grant, who was the owner of Olympic Studios, he was a friend of mine. I knew him well. And I remember when, the, when um, he bought in the first 16 track to Olympic. And he invited, you know, George Martin was there, all these producers and stuff and engineers and stuff. And so Keith's given a demonstration, you know, about how you can separate the drums, you know, and do a tom fill and it goes all over the place, you know, and how you can separate the vocals, doing all this stuff. We all thought we died and gone to heaven. We all thought this is just the most amazing thing. So they were very, and all of this happened in five years. Which is in now, you, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to get your get your head around it. But I mean, it was a very explosive time. You know, Hendrix was in town; he was doing his stuff, pushing the envelope with the sound, and the Beatles were pushing the envelope. So, so we just got caught up in it. It was a wonderful time. Billy Nichols, one of his great songs is "Forever's No Time at All." But you were on on with Billy on the Pete Townsend album, because Pete's got a version of well. So yeah. was it through Billy that you knew Pete, or did you know Pete before? Yeah. Or It was through Billy. I got to, got to know Pete. Yeah, absolutely. And it was fun. Uh, we recorded that, you know, the version that's on Pete's album. We recorded it at Pete's house in his studio. Then he was at uh, Eel Pie Island. And that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Pete loved it, because I, I, he was engineering. He was being the boffin, which he loves to do. Uh, and I was just uh, like a kid in a candy store playing one of his guitars and, and he had his drum set there. So I played drums, electric guitar and bass on the whole thing. And he was just loving it. So that was a fun day. I, I always remember that.
it must have been so exciting because you're involved in one of the Beatles Christmas recordings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you also you're involved in some of the Mike McGear with Paul McCartney involved. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They came to the studio. That's absolutely right. Yeah. That was a crazy day. That was the day. The day we did the Mike McGear sessions at Dick James Studios was the same day. It was a Sunday morning when Paul had announced to the world that the Beatles had taken LSD. <laughs> so <laughs> so it was so funny. I was saying I was living at my mum's place at the time. So I wake up. She bought me a cup of tea in bed because she knew I had to get up and get to the studio. And she bought me the, the News of the World paper. She said, hey, you might want to read this. So I'm sitting in bed with a cup of tea. So what in the world? He's done what? What's going on here? I'm thinking, I'm with him in the studio today. This would be interesting. Well, so I took the train up there, you know, walked out. And, and as I walk in down New Oxford Street from the train station to the studio, there is a mass of people outside the studio. And it was crazy. I mean, I had to, I had to have security help me get in the, in the studio. It was nuts. Yeah, that was a, that was a wild time. Yeah. Parallel to this, because there's so much going on. Yeah. Obviously, you had a, a friendship with Elton, who was then known as Reg, and right. And then Reg got involved with DJM, and then yep. you started recording with him and started producing yep. him. So you yep. you got to see his evolution of as an artist. Absolutely. Oh, from the from ground zero. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. I mean. You know, we were so excited. You know, Bernie was, yeah. was was in the loop. He's writing lyrics, you know. And it was all very unconventional because they never wrote anything together in the same room. Yeah, Bernie at the time was living up on the farm in Lincoln and he'd, you know, send a bunch of lyrics in the mail, ready to get the lyrics, figure out what he wanted to do. And, you know, then he'd call me over, call me over to his house, you know, where he was living in Pinner. And, yeah, I've got these songs, you know. What do you think? Yeah, great. Okay. How soon can we get in the studio? We couldn't wait to get in the studio to get this stuff recorded. So it was a wonderful time of creating together, dreaming together and creating together. I say dreaming together because my friendship with Elton back then, with Reg, was we all, we loved the same kind of music. We just listened to everything, rock, jazz, blues, classical, you name it. And of course, the whole West Coast scene was was exploding at the time. So we, we're dipping into that. You know, he loved the Beach Boys, and you know, we're listening to all that. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and all that when they came out. So all of it, there was all of this this like new music was just in the air. You know, at the time, so we were just lapping it all up. You know, so we would say, "Oh yeah, we, let's do a bit of this here. Let's try and make it sound like this." You know. And so my job would be to try and figure out how we're going to do that in a four-track studio. <laughs> and that's how Brilliant. it started. But it was great. See, in those days we had, which is I think is hard for a lot of young people to figure out now, is that we didn't have effects in the studio. There was no pedals and, and pushing buttons and gimmicks. It was your instrument, a microphone. That was basically it. You know, there may have been some built-in reverb in the desk, but that's really about it. Some tape delay from one of the machines you could rig up. But in terms of effects, it was bare bone. So what was a big thing back then in terms of recording, a good engineer had to know his room. 
Right, yeah. Certain instruments would sound best in a certain part of the room. The drums would sound best over there. The guitar would sound best and so on and so forth. So that was key to a lot of uh, those great recordings is those engineers, you know, Glenn Jones, Eddie Kramer, all these people, they and George Martin, you know, Jeff Emmerich, they had the room scoped out. They knew where the drums uh, and, and the piano, what sounded best, you know. And so a lot of it was to do with knowing the room. Because you worked with a very young Chris Thomas on Bread and Beer Band, didn't you? Yes, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was done at EMI Studios. Yeah. Yeah, Tony King produced that. Yeah. It was, tell- it was, was telling me you basically had no money. So. <laughs> That's why we called it Bread and Beer. Yeah, because we'd, we'd play and... Um, and then we pop around at the pub, you know, <laughs> get some bread. But that's how that's how the name came up. Yeah, it was during the lean time recessions and stuff. So we struggling artists kind of thing. And and Tony took pity on us and we booked some studio. He said, let's let's do something in the studio, you know. It sounds like real great fun because not all of that material has been released, but even sort of doing covers like the the letter, which is a great track. Yeah, it was fun. It was great fun. Absolutely.
reading uh, your book, Loud Than Rock, yeah. you say Lady Samantha is the first time when you've got Bernie and Elton in sync with each other, and that's when things really started to get to the Elton John that we know now. Yeah, Lady Samantha, I would say, yeah, that was a that was a turning point, and that was when um, a guy by the name of Steve Brown came on board and was helping manage and produce Elton. So at that time, so let's see, that's uh, what the year that is that sixty eight? I think we did that. Yeah. And at that time, I had left the company because I wanted to pursue my own music, put a band together, which which was Hookfoot. Yeah. And in fact, it was Hookfoot, members of Hookfoot that were played on that. So there was a shift there where this is Elton didn't have a band. I had a band, Hookfoot. And so for a while, for a period of time, we would back him on stuff, you know. And he would come and he, he would ask if he could come and sit in on some of our gigs to work out his material, which he did, which we loved. It was, it was fun. So that was, that was a good musical chemistry there between the Hookfoot and the early Elton stuff. And Steve Brown had come on board, and Steve was very helpful in encouraging Elton and Bernie to write for themselves. Yeah. Because there'd been a, how could you say, a, a conflict of interest between Dick James and them because Dick was old school, yeah. and all he concerned about was commercial. I need something commercial. It needs to be commercial. It needs to be like Tom Jones or Engelbert Humperdinck, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all of that stuff was going down, and so that's about when I had enough. I said, I'm done, you know, and Steve came in, and so that was that was the shift there, and Lady Samantha would have been the first, was the first single. There's some great recordings of some of the early BBC sessions of, of that material as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to go to various parts of the country and do some live, like Saturday morning BBC shows that they would do. And uh, yeah, some of those are on. Uh, they've been captured. It was fun. I forget the name. The one, one that I'm aware of is the Simmons on Sunday show. Oh yeah, okay. There you go. Yeah, yeah. There was a bunch of them. Yeah, they were good fun.
It's a great parallel career in that you know, you're establishing Hook Foot, trying to get a, an album going, and I think there were some issues there. But then you were also, as well, that great collaboration with Elton, so you've got parallel things going on. Yeah, we were still growing and learning all at the same time. And back in those days, Elton and myself had developed a cool music chemistry. You know, my guitar, playing with his piano, that was something that we'd worked on. And so that was a good blend. And um, it, it worked. It was a good music chemistry. And that's why he brought me in later on to After Empty yeah. Sky, the, the first Elton John album. That's why I'm in on there. You know, he still wanted that, wanted that musical connection there. It's an interesting period for you and Elton because Elton's career hadn't quite taken off. Right. And I think some of you guys were, were some interesting things that I think have mm-hmm. barely got released um, where you and Elton were, were doing covers of... Uh, Nick Drake. Oh, yeah. Were you involved in that as well? Joe Boyd was... Yeah, Joe Boyd. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I vaguely remember those sessions. I remember Nick, Nick Drake coming up to um, to the office there. And to be honest, I don't remember too much about the Nick Drake sessions. Yeah. I, may, I don't think I played on all of it, maybe just a couple of tracks or something. I always remember, you know, Elton introduced me to him, uh, but... It, at least it's just from my from my recollection. Yeah. He wasn't an easy person to get to know. You know, he he had some drug issues and stuff, you know. So he was kind of a morose character. Uh so he was, you know, I couldn't quite figure him out, didn't quite know where he was at. But I do remember doing some sessions with Joe Boyd. That's absolutely right. So I guess he must have produced that. And that's about as much as I can remember. <laughs> From 1971, that you were on a John Baldry, Long John Baldry album, It Ain't Easy. Yeah. And some great material on there, some of which is Elton material. But you, your involvement with John goes back to the Bluesology time, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I played in Bluesology for a while because when, let's see, that would be in 67, I joined Bluesology. So Elton had just, you know, been signed to the company, to Dick James. I'm producing him. We've got his project going, but he he still was part of Bluesology, 
Well, what had happened was Baudry had had a hit record, the number one hit record called Let the Heartaches Begin. Yeah, the big ballad. The big ballad thing, yeah. So he needed to get out there on the road with his band. So, you know, Elton came up to me one day and said, Baudry's got this, this hit record. We need to get out there on the road, you know, to support this. Our guitar player, a guy by the name of Neil Hubbard, he quit the band. So would you would you mind, you know, joining the band, take Neil's place, and that way we could be on the road and we could still work on our stuff as well? I said, great, yeah. So so I did. So 67 up into early 68, you know, about four or five months, something like that, you know, I was part of Bluesology. Yeah. And then two or three years later, Elton was producing him and then got you guys involved? Yes, yeah. One side, yeah, the side that he produced, he bought Hookfoot in to play. Yeah. And then the other side was Rod Stewart produced it with his guys. But yeah, yeah, we had fun doing that with Baldry. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good track on there, I think, called Flying. It's a really nice track. I remember that. Yeah. Good feeling on that.
I spoke to Steve Ellis before, and he was telling me about <gasps> the material that you worked on with him. But before we get into that, you knew Steve at school, didn't you? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right before the the uh, before you had the uh, the love affair. Yeah, we were at the same school together. And so, when you were working with him on on this material, because I think one or two singles did come out. He just left Love Affair, hadn't he? That's right. Yeah, yeah. He was doing a solo thing then. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And we did um, with Hopeful. We did a couple of shows with him as well. He asked us oh. to play with him. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was a lot of fun. One of the great lost albums is his uh, Rolling with the Sixty Nine Crew, which captures the material that he did with you and and Hookfoot. Oh. It's also got again an Elton track on it. Yeah, take me to the pilot. Wow, did we do that with him? Could well have done. Yeah, yeah. wow, did not know. Yeah, it's great. Obviously, as you know, Steve, fabulous voice. Oh, he was great, great singer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I believe also on some of those sessions, we had Zoot Money playing piano. Oh, wow. Yeah, because Steve was a friend of Zoot's, so we had he was in there. Yeah, it was a fun time. Speaking with P.P. Arnold uh, last week. Oh, man, you've done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And again, it's a similar similar thing to Steve Ellis, where classic album or a fantastic album lays in the vaults 
for, yeah. for decades. Yeah. And her album, The Turning Tide, has got a few of the tracks that you wrote and produced with her on, I mean, yeah. including If This Were My World. Yeah. Listening back, I mean, how that didn't get released at the time. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That was all uh, music industry, business slash politics, etc. You and Pat, I assume, went back, because you mentioned uh, Billy Nichols before, with P.P. Arnold, if she was involved with Immediate. So was it through that crowd? Exactly, yeah, yeah. I got to play on her first album. I believe it's called P.P. Arnold, The First Lady of Immediate. I think yeah. that's what it's called. Yeah. It, so, yeah. yeah, I was called in to, um, yeah, Jagger produced it, and I was called in to help her, you know, arrange some of the songs, and I played some piano on it. So then a three or four years later, I think she'd immediate had gone under. Right, yeah. So you were one of the artists that were collaborating because yeah. she was playing and writing with Barry Gibb and Eric Clapton was involved. It was like a oh, yeah. yeah, you're in yeah. there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was a great time. Great stuff, yeah. It's just incredible the, the volume of amazing songs and material that you're on, which is much broader than Elton. Well, I, yeah, it's a broader palette because I was I was never interested in being a pop star. Yeah. Whereas Elton was very focused on being a pop star. So that's what that is. So I, I my interests were, you know, far and wide, jazz, blues, folk music, you name it. So it's, and I always enjoyed stepping into those different musical areas and challenges. So to work with great singers like yeah. Steve is one, yeah, and then and then Pat Arnold, you know, with that whole gospel kind of thing. Oh, mm. just wonderful. Yeah, we had a great time.
going back to Elton, Tumbleweed Connection, yeah. the sound of it is getting closer to Hookfoot for me. Is that something a bit more conscious? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. That time, we were listening to a lot of, you know, American stuff, yeah. particularly the band, you know, Robbie Robertson and the band, those guys, you know. So they had come out with Big Pink. That was very influential to us. And Elton had, let me see, it's 1970. Elton had gotten influenced by Leon Russell. In fact, uh, Leon had come to town, to London. We saw him at meet myself, Elton and Bernie. We went and saw him at the Royal Albert Hall. Right. Uh, who was it? Oh, Leon Russell and the Shelter People. That's what it was. Yeah. And um, so it was really cool to watch, watch him do his thing and adapt. At that concert, we'd heard of Leon Russell before, yeah. you know, heard him play on the Delaney and Bonnie recordings and stuff, you know, Elton knew who he was. But to actually see him up close doing it, that just flipped him over. He's like, I need to be playing piano like that. So that's where his piano styling changed and all for the better, you know. So when it came to, to, to do the Tumbleweed Connection album, those kind of influences were very, very foremost, kind of southern, gospely, rolly, bluesy thing, you know, and then with the band, that whole funky thing. So Hookfoot was a, was the perfect band to play that stuff, you know, Roger Pope's drumming, absolutely perfect for it. And it seems to come out on the songs like Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, and it's really come to the fore on that. It's just magic. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the great thing, cool thing was, again, it's back to this chemistry thing. Um, the band was so tight and those songs, like Ballad of One Own Gone, we knew it before we got, we, we'd already played that song. We, we already knew the song before we got into the studio. So they were done very quickly. And, and in fact, that particular tune uh, was done in one take. Wow. Yeah. It was done in one take. And I remember we, we got in the studio, we set up our stuff, you know, we ran it through so that the engineer and stuff could get his get his levels and everything, you know. So we went up into the control room. We were in the Trident Studios at the time. And so the, the actual studios in the basement, the control room was up upstairs. We were upstairs in the control room and uh, we played it back, you know. Okay, great, let's, let's go do one. As I'm walking back down the stairs, I hear Gus Dudgeon shout out, oh, Caleb, by the way, uh, we decided we, we need a guitar intro for this. <laughs> okay, and I'm still walking, yeah. Okay, great, yeah, right. Pick up the guitar and just basically pulled it out the air and hit that intro. Which is basically me trying to do Steve Stills. It's from, um, I'll tell you where it comes from. Is influenced by the intro to Wooden Ships, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah. One of the greatest guitar intro setups to anything I've ever heard. And so that that influence was in the air. So that's so, so I, you know, I hit that intro, we played the song, and we did two more takes after that. We went upstairs to the control room, and everybody said, take number one, that's the one. And that's what you got on the record, this first take.
much time than I read the latest news. I tied my feet in dumb surprise and cause I saw they knew. Take a tongue for out my bags and ask me for my name. I started out my answer.
Thank you. Some of that sound and feel came out even more on with Hookfoot as well, your 1971 album. Some fantastic stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, Hookfoot albums. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, that was us. Yeah. Very funky, tight. Hookfoot, we were aficionados of American music. Our drummer, Roger Pope, and I, our upbringing was similar in that his father was a jazz drummer. Right. So he grew up listening to jazz, you know. Roger was the only drummer in London at that time that I knew of that could play the Art Blakey shuffle. Ah. When I first met Roger, he was he was in a band called the Soul Agents. They were back in Buddy Guy. So Roger had his roots. I mean, he knew how to play blues drums. He knew how to get that shuffle, you know, very tight. You know, most back then... A lot of English drummers were, were very, very messy and splashy, you know. They didn't understand pocket, but Roger did. We were tied to the hip together musically for 10 years, you know. We were, we were brothers in this thing, you know. And uh, he was always just great fun to work with. He loved my guitar playing. I loved his drumming. It was like, let's go do it. <laughs> yeah. The songwriting and Hookfoot got even stronger. I mean, living in the city. Yeah, Great song, yeah. but thank you. Good message there as well. Thank you. Yeah, I think we, we, we were ahead of our time. You know, the record company didn't know what to do with us. I think we were alternative before the word was being used, but we had a great time. It was a creative band. It was my baby in terms of you know, I was producing it, writing most of the stuff, and still learning and growing in all of this. And it, it, it was just a lot of fun. You guys broke up after a few more years, and yeah. It seems a shame, given that every one of you were masters at your instruments. Yeah, we broke up when the uh, one of the reasons we broke up was the glitter scene had come in, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm done. I was <laughs> like, I just you're not wearing platforms, I, and no, <laughs> I couldn't handle it. Yeah, that was not for me, and that's when I moved to America. Cease to be free 
on a sunny day You can see for miles and miles The birds call to the source of all that's ever been and gone Tell me It was 1974 when you first came over to the US? Uh, well, it's when I moved. Moved, right. Moved, yeah, yeah. First came over with Hookfoot on tour in 1972. Chicago, I think? That's right. I first moved to Chicago, yeah. I was given an opportunity to join the musicians' union there, do some studio work there. And I thought, yeah, I need to do this. And that was a great experience. I got to play with some, some of the blues guys there and, again, more learning. But then you got the call after about a year from Elton? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he saved my life there because I moved there in, um, like, springtime, but then it was in wintertime. Winter in Chicago, oh, my oh, God, no. It's cold. Oh, boy, unbelievable. <laughs> Snow. I couldn't believe it, you know, and all these minus, you know, minus zero temperatures with the wind, wind chill yeah. coming off the lake and everything. So that was during that time he called me up and said, um, you know, I want to put a new band together. Roger's going to be in it. You know, I'd like you to play. I just said, tell me when. <laughs> Get me out yeah. of here. Yeah. So that's how that happened, yeah. So you're back playing live dates with Elton and then you're on Blue Moves as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we did Rock of the Westies before that and then Blue Moves. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you worked with uh, Bruce Johnston? Bruce, yeah, right. I played on his solo album. Uh, got to know Bruce because he had sang some backup vocals on uh, a couple of our songs on the Blue Moves album. Ah. That's when I got to meet Bruce, you know. 
And um, so, yeah, so, so then I was living out here and he invited me to come and play on his, his solo project. Which is which is a lot of fun. There's lovely songs on that, which I think you were on, like Daydre. I can't remember the title. <laughs> can't remember the titles, but uh, but it was a lot of fun. We had a, I remember we had a great drummer, Gary Malabar, who was Steve Miller's drummer. Oh, yeah. So remember the tune "Fly Like an Eagle," Steve Miller's. Yeah, group? that's Gary playing that groove. Wow. There. Yeah. So he played. He was a friend of Bruce's. So that was a lot of fun working with Gary on that. Yeah. Early 80s. You've also got a credits on on the Beach Boys album, Keeping the Summer Alive. That's right. Yep, got to play on that. Is yep. that through Bruce again? It was. Yeah, and that that was that was great. That was a lot of fun.
So after Bruce, did um, was it Hall and Oates come knocking? I do believe so. Yeah, it would have been after Bruce. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was a studio album, and then you're also on a live album? A live album too, yeah. Long the Ridge, Red Ledge. And then Daryl Hall's solo album called Sacred Songs. That was a good album. That was me and Robert Fripp for playing guitars. Robert Fripp? Robert wow. Fripp, yeah, very different. You and Robert, that's quite a combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did that in New York, yeah. It was a good album. It was some good stuff on there. It didn't get, um, I don't know what happened. It didn't get released the way it should have done. There was some some stuff going on there behind the scenes with the record label and stuff, but it was a very good album. It is available now on iTunes and stuff. The early 1980s, you turned your life around and, and Chester Thompson, who played drums with Genesis, yeah. had a, a key role in that, didn't he? Absolutely, sure did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, by that time, I was pretty messed up kind of at the end of my rope with things and drugs and everything else, you know. But Chester came came in and um, he had basically, he had something different about him. And I couldn't figure out how this guy who was the same age as me in the same line of work, had the same similar experiences. Yeah, he wasn't crazy like everybody else. Mm. And he was he had this peace and this solidity about him. And I used to think to myself, this guy's got something. Whatever it is, I want it. And basically it was Christ. It was yeah. Jesus. You know, he didn't preach to me or try and, you know, hit me over the head with a Bible or anything like that. He used to tell me that him and his wife were Christians and they went to church and I would say, oh, yeah, okay, that's that's good for you, great. But um, one day we had this discussion and his, his wife asked me a question. She said, Caleb, why don't you tell us just exactly what do you believe in? So I just went off on all of this stuff and uh, you know, all the new agey stuff and Eastern religions and all, all kind of crazy stuff. And it's like, as I was telling her this, I was like checking off a list in my mind. And it was like, well, that didn't work. And that don't work. And that don't work. This ain't doing nothing. And um, at the end of the conversation, Chester would just, just very patiently look at me. He would sit across the table and he would say, yeah, man, I know what you mean, man. You just need Jesus. You know, and I had to go home to my place and try and get a good night's sleep, and I could not sleep because mm. all I could hear was those words that he said, you just need Jesus. Because I knew deep down inside, I knew everything that I had said that I, I professed to believe in, none of it could fix my internal condition, a lot of which was bound up, not, not only the drugs, but it was bound up in incredible hatred toward my father who had abandoned us when I was 12 years old. That's what it was. And the only thing that I, I'm hearing was, you just need Jesus. So that was the start of the turnaround, to which I'm forever thankful to Chester. Obviously heavily involved in the church, and you've involved in music as well about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. There's a live album with the faculty that you've got. Um, oh, yeah, my jazz group, yeah. Yeah, I was mm-hmm. about, about to ask you about that, because it comes out on a Just Passing Through, the jazz. It's a great way of almost connecting you to your roots as well. There you go. Absolutely. You got it. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of fun. And uh, it's it's a great group. We're all on the same page. And uh, it's one of those things where when you have the chemistry, it's not work. Yeah. It's not, you know, it, it's fun. So we always look forward to playing together. It's great. You mentioned just at the start, so you, you've got an updated autobiography and we've we've also got the documentary of your amazing life. 
It's coming out and it will be out May 1st. And there'll be more information posted, all kinds of streaming platforms. It will be available May 1st. I'm really looking forward to it. There's some trailers. Yeah. You've got David Johnston. Yeah. Got some great people involved talking Mm -hmm. about working with you and your life as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be, we've cut some new trailers as well. So they'll be coming out as well. So it's kind of like, watch this space. It's coming out this year. It's been a, a real pleasure and privilege to talk to you, Caleb. I've loved your music for so oh. long. And this goes back to Baby, <laughs> Baby, your phrasing is bad. It's just fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. All the best from Yorkshire. Aha, uh-huh. great. Absolutely. I'm drinking some PG tips right here, right now. Oh, brilliant. Your honor. <laughs> Absolutely. Take care. Okay, right, right, man. Thanks. You too. Bye bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you. Thank you.